So this morning, we're going to start a new series. The name of the series is Heed the Warning. Now, this is the book of Jude that we're going to be going through, and we're going to be going through the book of Jude verse by verse. I think that's the best way to preach the Word of God because it takes it into context and allows us to understand the whole picture. I'm not saying it's wrong to preach one out of sequence from time to time, but you know, overall, I believe that we are going to get the most out of the Word of God when we go verse by verse as it was written and as it was inspired to those men of old who wrote the Bible. So the book of Jude is where we're going to be, so you go ahead and turn there if you will. So the book of Jude, it's the second to last book of the Bible. It's only one chapter. So if I say Jude 1, that means Jude verse 1, not Jude chapter 1, okay? And that's kind of how we'll look at that. All right, so the book of Jude is kind of one of those obscure books. Uh, maybe we don't talk about a lot. You don't hear a lot about. But the book of Jude is slam full of warnings. Warnings to the Christians in the first century and warnings to Christians today in the year 2022. Warnings of false prophecy. Warnings of people who are demeaning the truth of God's word. People who are attacking the truth. And how we as Christians need to respond to those attacks on the truth. It is very, very important that we know why we believe what we believe. That we are people who are not just shallow in our understanding of the Word of God, but we are people who are deep in our understanding of the Word of God. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know why you believe what you believe. I think that's one reason why our nation is in the shape that it's in today, is because we have failed to disciple our children in the depths of the Word of God. We've thought that maybe an hour at church or once a week. Um, an hour with the youth group once a week is enough to get them everything they need. But we fail to remember that they're in the public school systems for nearly 40 hours a week. Or we fail to remember that they're watching secular media on their tablets and their iPhones 30 hours a week. We fail to remember that they're getting a lot more of the secular false uh, understanding of what life is than they're ever getting of the truth of God's Word. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that parents are to speak of the things of God all day long. When you wake up, when you're sitting at the table, when you're going by the way, and before you go to bed. That's how important it is to disciple our children in understanding the Word of God. And Jude is going to give us a warning. As we go through this three-part series, we're going to see that Jude, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words into the Bible, is going to help us to know how to encounter a world that is continually attacking the truth continually attacking the truth. So we're going to start there in Jude, verse 1. If you want to stand with me, please, as we honor the Word of God. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 4 in the book of Jude. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word Lord, as a local church, we believe that this is inspired and breathed out by you, that every word in the scriptures are your words, and when they are your words, they automatically become absolute truth. So today, God, as we stand on the truth of your word, I pray that you would pierce our hearts, 
I pray that you would grow us in our faith. I pray that you would encourage us. And Lord, I also pray that you would convict us. Convict us, Lord, to repent of our sins and turn to you, to give you full control over our lives. And Lord, I pray if there be anyone here today who doesn't know you as their Savior, that today, Lord, they would come to that place of understanding the gospel and that they would repent of their sins and believe that you died and rose again, Jesus. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're only going to go through these first four verses, and you may be saying, Ben, there's just not a lot there. Well, there's more there than you think. In the first century, when someone would write a letter, they would always have a greeting in that letter. And in the greeting, a lot of times it would include to whom the letter was written. And a lot of times it would also include who was writing the letter. Well, here Jude doesn't leave the imagination, um, doesn't take that for granted. He comes right off the bat and says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And then he says to whom he writes this to, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So here today, I want you to take this personally because this letter was written to you. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are one of those who are the called, the loved, and the kept in verse 1. This letter was written directly to you from the very mouth of God Almighty, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It is a special word for us today and something that we can take to heart. So as we look, we start to ask questions. For, for one, this man named James in verse 1. Who is this man named James? Well, James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 15, because the writer of Jude, this man named Jude, said that he was James' brother. So we understand that James is not James the disciple or James the apostle, but actually James the brother of Jesus, James the half-brother of Jesus. See, James' parents would have been Joseph and Mary, his biological parents. So we know that Mary was indeed the biological mother of Jesus. So James here, the brother of Jude, would have been the half-brother of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we really get a better connection of who Jesus' siblings were. Now, we don't really talk about a lot about who Jesus' siblings were. They don't play necessarily prominent roles in the storyline of Scripture, but they did contribute greatly to the first century church, especially James and Jude. Well, we see here in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the Bible says this, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Did you know Jesus had sisters as well? So here in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Judas is the Jude that we're talking about today, widely believed by many scholars. And the reason we say that is, is because the name Jude would have been like a nickname for someone who was named Judas. It would kind of be like someone who's named Samuel that you call Sam. So Judas would have been called Jude. Therefore, the writer of the book of Jude would also be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we talk about that, we ultimately see that it is very likely that Jude was Jesus' half-brother, both of whom were sons of Mary. So now we can kind of see Jude had a special perspective. But as you look in the Gospels, you find out that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in Jesus before his crucifixion. It was actually after the resurrection that his brothers believed because he appeared to them based on what we find in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. So he did appear to his brothers after his resurrection, and based upon that appearance, they started to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. 
But can you imagine growing up in the same household as Jesus and being his, older, or his younger brothers and, and looking up to him, but yet denying that he was the Son of God, denying that he was God in the flesh? I mean, they would have had a perspective like no one else, but yet they denied him until they saw him in his resurrected body. Well, this same Jude, the one that looked up to his big brother Jesus, the one who grew up in the same home as Jesus, has now been born again and saved. And now he is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving you and me a message today to live by. So there's three things that I want us to look at as we look at these four verses. The first thing that I want us to look at is the fight rages on. We're going to start in verse 3 as we go through the sermon, and then we're going to end up back at verses 1 and 2. The fight rages on. In verse 3, the Bible says this, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. The Greek phrase there, to contend, that's there in your Bibles, is unique to the entire New Testament. That exact same phrase is not used anywhere else in the Bible. It is the only place where it's used, and contend means simply to fight intensely or in a combative sense. So when Jude is saying this here, he's saying, my friends, fight intensely, go to combat for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. He's not saying try to be real nice about it. He's not saying, you know, well, if the opportunity comes up, maybe you ought to fight for the faith. No, he's saying you are to fight intensely for the faith. You are to fight uh, definitively for the faith. You are to make it known what the truth of God's word is. You know, my question for you this morning is, what are you willing to fight for with all of your heart? Have you ever asked that question, what am I willing to fight for with everything within me? Because there's a lot of things I think we would be willing to fight for, but there's a certain point in time where we would probably surrender because the fight gets too hot and it gets too hard. But what is that thing? What, is there something in your life that you'd be willing to fight to the nth degree for, even to the point of losing your life? And I think a lot of us would probably say our family. You know, there's uh, men... You know, if there's any men in here with children, you would say right away, or any men in here who are married, or any men in here really who have any family at all that you're close to, you would say immediately that you would fight against the threat against your family. And you know, ladies, I might ask you that same question. Is there any threat that would come against your children so great that you would not defend them? I don't think there is. I think that God has put something within us to fight for the things that are most important to us. A story shared on Time.com about a hero heroic dad goes kind of like this. Greg Alexander awoke while camping in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in early June to the sound of his teenage son's screams. A bear had attacked the 16-year-old, Gabriel, in his sleep. And Alexander saw the bear dragging him across the ground by his head. According to the Citizen Times, worried that he might already be too late to save his son, Alexander jumped on the bear's back, hit it in the face, and threw rocks at it until it finally let go and went away. The two had to hike several miles to safety, and though Gabriel's scalp and facial injuries were serious, he was expected to make a full recovery, all thanks to his dad's bravery in the face of the beast. And I don't believe there's a dad or a mom in here that would not do the same thing. 
When we think about the importance of our family and children, I want us to now go to the point of truth. The importance of truth. What does truth mean to you? Did you know that the only reason that you are able to have a family, the only reason that we're able to live in a civil society with laws and with morality is because of the truth of God's word? Did you know that without truth, you no longer have a family? Without truth, you no longer have a marriage. Without truth, you have no boundaries in society that keeps your family safe at night. There are no boundaries whereby we can live in and even have an ordered life without truth. Without truth, there is utter chaos. And we're seeing as we're stepping back and we're looking at our society play this out, we're seeing that as they are continually neglecting truth, that they are entering into chaos. We're starting to see that now as a man is swimming in a girl's uh, swimming league, that there is now chaos. Well, is he really the winner or not? What happens to the girls who are being unfairly uh, marginalized because this man wants to be a woman? What happens when our little girls grow up and they want to compete in sports and they want to have a chance to excel at what they love, but yet men are holding them down and not allowing them to do that? How can we operate in a society that has forsaken truth? We can't. It's impossible to truly have an ordered society without God's truth. Therefore, we must fight for the truth. Therefore, we must be a people who intensely contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We must be a people who do not back down to the pressures of political correctness. We do not back down to the pressures of woke work environments. We do not back down to the pressures of the government trying to enter our families and tell us how to live our lives, tell us how to educate our children, tell us how to be a family that we get the understanding of from the Word of God. But they're trying to impose a new definition of the family, a new definition of sexuality, a new definition of gender, and they're trying to cram it down our throats. My friends, that is an attack on the truth of God, the faith that we must contend for, the Word of God as given from God himself. When it says there, the, the contend for the faith that was, once, that was delivered to the saints once for all in verse 3, what that means is settled doctrine, settled understanding of truth, the scriptures. See, we have what we call the Holy Bible, and that is the 66 books understood by thousands of years of church tradition to be the word of God. These books stood up to great scrutiny over the years. Each one of these books in the New Testament were either written by an apostle or someone who knew an apostle directly. The Old Testament is accepted scriptures that the Hebrews have accepted for literally thousands and thousands of years. The Bible has been well authenticated, well documented. It has never been proven wrong when backed up against archaeology or geography or geology or psychology. The Bible has never, ever, ever been proven wrong. As we see that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, original documents from uh, before Christ, and they almost match up to your Bible today word for word. This Bible has been preserved through the centuries. This Bible has been so well preserved, we can trust every word that we read in it. And today, God has gifted us with this word, and we must contend for the word of God. This is theology that was understood to be true based upon what's found in God's word. This is the complete and full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that needs to be added to this book. 
There's nothing that should ever be taken away from this book. It is fully settled doctrine, settled scripture, and something that we must always contend for. We must contend to keep it true and accurate, to not allow people to distort it, to not allow people to rewrite it, to not allow people to portray something to our children and to the next generation that is contrary to the Word of God. You may ask, Ben, why do you preach things that are so difficult from the pulpit? I preach things that are difficult from the pulpit because the Word of God prompts me to preach those things. We must preach from Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of the Word of God. I can assure you that my process of determining what, we should, uh, what I should preach on a, on a weekly basis is not based upon what I like the most. It's based on what I feel God is leading me to and in the proper context so that I am simply conveying what the Bible already says. I'm not going to put a spin on it. I'm not going to put my opinion in it. This is the Word of God that I have been charged to preach to you. You know, here at Pole Creek, we have what we call the, an article of faith, articles of faith. And I sent an email out this week. Is this, uh, each week, I'm going to address one of our articles of faith that has been approved uh, and documented in our church's official papers. And these articles of faith are several different doctrines about God and about sin and about the church and about society that we as a church have agreed upon to be true, that those articles of faith unite us and they are all scriptural and found in the Bible. The reason it's important for us to have those is because it is important for us to preserve the truth, the true doctrine, the true theology of what God's Word portrays. The problem that many churches are facing today, you have many mainstream denominations, all right, whether it's the Episcopals or whether it's the United Methodist Church or whether it's the, the Lutheran Church or whether it's the, the liberal wing of the Presbyterian Church. You say, Ben, they're shutting their doors down there every day. Ben, they're empty. There's no one sitting on the pews in these churches anymore. Why are these churches dying? It's because there was a time and a place where they decided they were going to veer from the Word of God and they were going to start preaching about social justice. They were going to start preaching about political correctness. They were going to start teaching and reading poems instead of preaching the Word of God. You say, Ben, is that why they've died? That is exactly why those churches are dying. Because if you go to a church like that that doesn't stand for anything, that doesn't have a foundation under it that has stood the test of time, that is no different than going to a country club. It's no different than going to the bowling alley and bowling in your bowling league on Sundays. There is nothing foundational to it. It becomes simply a fellowship gathering. That's why we as a church, I don't care if the Southern Baptists decide to go the same way as the rest of them or not. At Pole Creek, we're going to stand on the Word of God. We're going to stand for what God's Word says. And that's why I did not believe that it was beneficial for Pole Creek to adopt the Southern Baptist, Baptist faith and message as our official uh, statement of faith. Because we're not like, necessarily, the Southern Baptist Convention in every way. We have a certain belief on end times. We have a certain belief on how someone becomes saved. We have certain beliefs here at this local church that has been understood and adopted by generations before us, going all the way back to the year 1917, that this church has stood on. And we're going to continue to stand on those, not because it's tradition, but because the Word of God supports it. So we must be a church that contends for the faith. Indeed, the battle is raging on, the fight is raging on, and it is all around us today. So the second thing that I want us to see, if you're taking notes, the enemy's objective. We have an enemy today. We have an enemy that is defined. We know his identity. We know where he came from. We know what he's capable of. It is the enemy's objective that we need to be clear on, and we're going to find that in verse 4. So if you want to look there in Jude, verse 4, 
The Bible says this, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Have you ever heard the saying, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer? You know, that's not biblical. That's not found in the Bible. But there is some truth to that. Because if someone has the ability to harm you, if someone has the ability to, to inflict pain on you, you need to know what their next move is. You need to know where they are. It's just like in a military campaign. You need to know the next move of your enemy so that you can counter that move and so that you can ultimately achieve the victory. During World War II, the Nazis used an encoder machine called the Enigma. Some of you may have read about the, the Enigma. The Enigma would take a message and scramble it up. When the message was delivered, as long as the recipient knew the settings of the Enigma machine, when the message was scrambled, he could decipher the message. This made it impossible for the Allies to intercept and understand messages from the Nazis. This was until a man named Alan Turing developed a machine, and eventually a technique that allowed the British and other Allies to decipher German military messages. This was in part, to this day, credited for the Allied victory in World War II because they had the ability to know the enemy's next move. Well, you know what? I think it would benefit us as believers to know how our enemy operates. Now, the one I'm talking about is Satan himself, Lucifer, that great angel that rebelled against God. God defeated him and the third of the angels that rebelled with him in heaven and cast them to earth as a judgment. That is the enemy we're talking about. And did you know that even though our enemy is this great majestically created being, he doesn't use new and creative strategies. He uses the same strategy every single time. You say, Ben, is he really that foolish? Actually, he's just that smart. We're the ones who are foolish because we're the ones that keep falling for the same strategy again and again and again. So a few things that we need to see about our enemy is, number one, he comes in under stealth. Did you hear that in verse 4? For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. What Jude was addressing here was in the first century church, there were people coming in quietly, secretly, who were holding to false doctrine, who were holding to uh, truths or, or beliefs, I should say, that were contrary to the word of God. And they were coming in and they were secretly spreading these lies. They were secretly diverting God's children into uh, illicit relationships and sexual immorality and sensuality. They, they, were, they were basically proclaiming that the grace of God is so great that as long as you believe, you can live however you want and you're going to be okay. We know that based upon the book of James, faith without works is dead. We also know based upon 1 John that if you don't love the brethren, if you don't love God... The Bible says you're a liar and you're not saved. The Bible teaches us that not only are we to believe, but there is to be fruit in how we live our lives. That's not to say you're perfect. That's not to say you'll never make a mistake. But the overall identity of you after you got saved should be that you are producing fruit that God is giving you, that you are living for him and you are a changed person. Well, these people were coming in and saying, no, 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 that's not it. Just believe Basically, just pray the prayer, just bow and say uh, this, this, and this, and guess what? You're good. You can still stay in your sexual immorality. You can still have your um, ungodly lifestyle. You can still cheat your neighbors. You can still be a thief. You can still be all these different things. You're okay. 
because of God's grace. They were distorting the truth of God, and it was wrong. They came under stealth. Also, we see there the second part of that in verse 4. They have come in by stealth. They are ungodly turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ. In other words, they were preaching this false idea of grace. And that's why many people who are of other denominations will say to Baptists a lot of times, oh, well, y'all just believe you can get saved and you're always saved and you can live however you want. Well, that's not true. As Baptists, we don't believe that you can just get saved and live however you want and everything's going to be okay. What we say is if you've truly been born again and you've truly become a new creature in Christ, you won't live however you want. Now, there might be times in your life where you stray, but a sign of someone who knows Jesus is that he will discipline them and he'll bring them back. He will bring them back into line in that relationship that they were once in. Someone who's living in blatant sin for five 10, 15 years, and they say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know what I have to say to them? You're showing signs that you don't have a father because God has not brought you back. And if you keep living this lifestyle, you're going to die and go to hell because I don't believe you've ever been saved. And sometimes that's hard for people to hear because they want to say, you know what, Ben, I'm saved, once saved, always saved. I'm good to go no matter what happens, I'm good. Sometimes people who say that need to check their heart and make sure they got saved truly to begin with. To make sure, as the Bible says, all those who are in Christ are new creatures. The old has passed away, and behold, all things are made new. And that is something that we need to be asking. And these people were teaching this false doctrine of grace. It made Jude pretty mad. So mad, he was about to write about salvation. Did you hear what he said there? He actually diverted his, intention, his, his initial purpose in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, he was going to write about being saved and salvation... He said, although I was going to do that, I found it necessary. Basically, instead, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He's saying, listen, the ungodly, false doctrines that are being preached in the house of God has disgusted me and made me so sick that although I was going to write about this, now I'm going to write for you to contend for the faith to fight against the false doctrine, to fight against it vehemently to where there is none of that left. And lastly, we see the enemy does this. So number one, he comes in under stealth. Number two, he teaches false doctrines of grace. And number three, we see here that he denied the master and Lord. Did you see there in verse four? It says here, have come in by stealth, they're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only master and Lord. You know what they were denying? His authority. They were saying, you know, I know Jesus talked about um, repentance. I know that Jesus talked about taking up your cross and following him. But you know what? Maybe that was to just a certain group of people. Or you know what? That was just the times. You know, we're not necessarily going to take that really seriously today in this church. You know, we're just going to kind of put those, those words of God to the side have you seen that happening, by the way, in today's churches? They start to pick and choose what they like and what they don't like. They say, well, you know, that, that Greek word there could mean this, could mean that. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And they start making concessions for, uh, for uh, ungodly lifestyles. They start making concessions for this wokeness that we're seeing in our society and our culture and in politics. You know, this, this blatant racism that's coming against our children. And, and all these different things that we're starting to see here we're starting to see that it is because it initially is a breakdown of the truth of God's word. And what that always breeds is chaos. 
Remember me saying that. It always breeds chaos. But that's the strategy of the enemy. The strategy of the enemy. He's not going to come out and say, guess what, guys? I'm, I'm Satan, and I'm going to ruin your life. He's never going to say that to you because he knows you're going to say, no, you're not. Get away from me. He doesn't come in like that. He comes in like a friend. He comes in like someone who's tolerant. He comes in like someone who's sensitive. He comes in someone who's reasonable, someone who, who is compassionate or empathetic. And then he starts to uh, perpetrate this false doctrine of grace. You know, God's not going to dismiss you for this. Just go ahead and have a good time. Don't worry about that. You know God. He'll always forgive you. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's going to be okay. And then the very end result is that the person that has befriended the enemy denies the master and the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to hate authority. And I think we see that in our society today. There is an all-out attack on all types of authority. Did you know that when people lash out against law enforcement, that yes, they're lashing out against law enforcement, but ultimately, as being created in the image of God, they are ultimately lashing out against the authority of the Creator. Because as we look at society and we look at the order and the structure of society and how society has certain laws and certain orders of how we do things, it is all a reflection ultimately of our creator who is a creator of order, a creator who respects authority, a creator who understands authority. And as our society operates under authority, it is simply reflecting our creator. You know, as we even within your home environment, moms and dads, as you take care of your children, as you teach your children, as you discipline your children, you are actually reflecting the creator of the universe when you do those things because they reflect our Father in heaven who does the same things to us. The reason that we value family as believers is because God values family. The reason we value morality is because God values morality. And when God made us, he made us in his image. And what that means is, is God's fingerprint is on the soul of every human being. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible says that all human beings have the truth. They understand that God exists. The problem is not that they don't have the truth. The problem is, the Bible says, that they suppress the truth. They suppress it, and instead of worshiping the Creator, they choose to worship things created by the hands of men. That is ultimately the fall of mankind. His game plan's always been the same. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? Listen to this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he, he said this to the woman. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? See, he didn't come out and say, I'm going to ruin your life, Eve. He said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And she was 100% correct in that answer. And here's Satan. No, you will not certainly die. Remember that false doctrine of grace? The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The thing was that Adam and Eve heard they could be like God. That was where they undermined his authority. They said, I no longer want God's authority. I no longer want his authority in my life. I want my own authority. I want to be God myself, and I want to call the same shots. Does it sound familiar to what Jude 
is preaching here in the book of Jude. It all starts out, the enemy comes in under stealth. Then the enemy preaches a false doctrine of grace. And then ultimately, the person he is attacking denies the Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that Satan will do the same thing to Adam and Eve that he did to these first century Christians. And my friends, he will do the same thing to you if you let him. Now again, I am not saying you can lose your salvation. Don't hear that at all. But I am saying that if your life is not producing fruit, fruit of the Holy Spirit, fruit of God's working in your life, then you do need to make sure. And if I didn't tell you that, then I wouldn't care about you and love you today. I don't want you to be under a false pretense that you know Jesus when you really don't. Maybe you say, well, Ben, you know, yeah, I prayed a prayer years and years ago, but my life's never really changed, and, you know, nothing's really going on, and I don't really have a, a passion for God or the things of God, and, you know, I'm still living in sin, and I'm not really worried about it. It's just kind of what I do. We need to be asking those questions because there is a possibility that you may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've been preached a false doctrine of grace. You think you're okay, but you're really not. And lastly, this is what I want us to look at here. Let's enter the battle. So as, we, as we're talking through Jude here this morning, the three things that I wanted you to focus on, number one, the fight rages on. It's happening today, and we must contend for that faith. Number two, the enemy's objective has always been the same, and it will be the same in your life if you let him get a foothold. And then lastly, we see that we must enter the battle. It's time. It, it, we no longer need to be on the sidelines, church. We no longer to be a, need to be a group of people who observe from a distance. We need to be engaged in the battle, the battle that God himself has called us to. You know, one thing that's interesting is before a soldier can enter the battle, there are several things that he must do. He must first enlist, then graduate boot camp, then be trained, and then finally be deployed. That goes without saying all of the other steps involved in combat training and eventual deployment. There is so much involved from a man enlisting in military service to the point that he actually sets foot on the battlefield. You may say, well, Ben, sometimes there's not time. The problem is if you send someone untrained or unqualified into the battle, they will ultimately die. They will be a danger to themselves and they will be a danger to those around them. So now as we look at the Christian battle, now as we look at our command to contend for the faith, here is how you can know if you're qualified to enter that battle. Well, let's go back up to verse 1 here. And the Bible says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ. God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So the question is today, have you been called have you been called by the Holy Spirit? Has there been a time and a place in your life where God has intersected your world, revealed to you that you're a sinner, revealed to you that his son died for you on the cross and rose from the dead, and revealed to you that you need to, be, need to repent? And then upon that revelation that the Holy Spirit brought to you, you said, yes, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me and save me. Now, if there's been a time and a place in your life where that has happened, where you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God, you are called. You are one of the called by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if you are called by the Holy Spirit, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, then you are also loved by God the Father and you are kept for Jesus Christ. We go back to this understanding in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Did you know that he loves you? And if you're his child and he loves you, the Bible teaches us that he will keep you. If you are truly a child of God, the Bible says 
that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither life, nor death, nor principalities. And that's why there is a misconception among Christianity that someone who commits suicide automatically dies and goes to hell. And I'm here to say upon the authority of God's word, that is not true. The Bible teaches us that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. That once your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, nothing can ever change that. Now, is suicide horrible? Yes. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it even a sin? Yes. But it will not erase your salvation. Nothing will negate your salvation. Once you've been saved, the Bible says you are kept and you are sealed until the day of redemption by the promise of the Holy Spirit. So you may say, Ben, should I get into this battle? Should I begin to contend for the faith? Should I be able, begin to contend for the truth? Have you been born again? Because if you have, the answer is yes. And if you've been born again, you can go into the battle knowing that you're loved by God and that you're kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. That no matter what happens in this battle that we're fighting in this day and age, no matter what happens in this world, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, nothing can separate you from the Lord Jesus Christ. That whether we live or whether we die, guess what? We're going to be okay. That whenever you go to the funeral of your loved ones who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, it's sad. Yes, you should mourn that loss. But ultimately, if you know Jesus, you're going to see him again. Ultimately, there is no question, no ifs, ands, or buts. They're in heaven today because of this same truth that was applied to their life. They accepted Jesus, and therefore they are loved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we see that as we enter the battle, that we can have mercy, peace, and love. If you look at verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You know what mercy simply is? Not getting what you deserve. And I am thankful today as a child of God that God has not always given me what I deserve. You know what I deserve today? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You know what I deserve today? Death. Hell. I actually deserve a place called hell. Because before my salvation, I was an enemy of God. Everything I stood for was against everything he stood for. I was against his authority in my life. I was against his holiness. I was against his goodness. I was an enemy of God. I deserved death, and I, ultimately I deserved hell. But God didn't give me what I deserved. As a matter of fact, he gave me something I didn't deserve, something called grace. He willingly came and took on human flesh, walked on this earth for 33 years, willingly carried a criminal's cross up the hill called Calvary, and willingly died on that cross for me and you. You know what Jesus said when it was all done? It is finished. You know what today, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are loved and you are kept by him. And there is nothing that can ever take that away from you. And today, if you've never done that, wouldn't you like to today? We're going to have a, a time of prayer and altar call as we um, worship here at the end. And we want to invite you to come forward. If you need to be counseled in that respect, if you say, Ben, I've never been saved, and today I want to trust Jesus as my Savior, I want you to come forward. And church family, I want you to be in a time of prayer and contemplation because maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines for far too long. Maybe you have been caving to the false doctrines that are coming down the pipeline. You have been caving to the secular idea of what life is all about. And you have not been proclaiming and contending for the faith that was once and all delivered unto the saints. And that is the word of God. Today, we must not only be a church that is going to contend for the faith, but we must be a group of people that are willing to go out into our workplaces, into our schools, into our communities, and contend for the faith. Because listen, souls are on the line. 
People are believing a lie perpetuated by Satan. And the only people standing between that and their ultimate death is those whom God has called to preach the gospel. And that's his children. That's us. Let's bow our heads this morning.